those who love Him. Then a little bit later, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And then a little bit later, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged. We will be judged with greater strictness. And then pretty, pretty soon before our passage, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. This is a big deal with James is that God, and really Jesus in particular, is both Savior and Judge, and there is a coming reckoning. There is a coming judgment. And that's not something that's just supposed to be a bat to hit people with, to frighten them into to knowing God. It's, it's, this is something that's to affect the lives of God's people right now. Now... James is going to bring that out yet again in this passage to say this. And he says brothers a lot in this passage. In this little short passage, my brothers, my brothers, my brothers, three times. It's affectionate, but he's saying this. Right now you're having to wait on things. And, and there's, there's a suffering aspect to that. There's a pain to that. Where do you find the ability to do that? It comes from knowing this, that the judge is near. Simultaneously, that's alarming and it's comforting. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also, be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray now that as we hear Your Word, that it would not be something that we hear and merely tolerate as we're on autopilot uh, awaiting the end of the service. And all of us have that in us. But, Lord, don't let us go into uh, a non-thinking, non-feeling, non-willing place in our hearts. We pray that you would open our hearts and open our ears to receive from your hand what we need. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every once in a while, I'll use an example, and I feel like I've got to start the example by saying... Um, what I'm about to share with you is neither, our, um, is neither condoned nor suggested. This, this would be one of those examples. Uh, this is not a DPC condoned uh, illustration. I'm just going to use it anyway. A friend of mine shared with me that one time his wife was yelling at him from another part of the house. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't yelling like, I can't see you or hear you, but I need you to come help me, you know, pick up this thing like, you know, hey, where are you? It was, a, it was a, a yelling of anger. She was yelling at him from another room, 
because she was angry. And he called back to her, you're yelling at your father. And I said, why in the world did you say that? He said, you know, I I have lived with her enough to know when she is really angry at me and when she is yelling because she's mad at something much deeper and much older than that. And he went on to tell me about uh, some of the ways that her dad had betrayed the family. And he wondered, has she ever really dealt with it? And he said, I hear it sometimes that when she's getting mad at me, it's completely disproportionate. And I think she's yelling at her dad. Again, I don't necessarily suggest that approach in your own relationships, okay? But uh, I'm just going to say, that is a a faithful account of what happened, I think. But, you know, we've all done this. You, uh, You have a bad day at work. Or you're, you're really in the pressure cooker about something. Or there's a deadline looming. Or things are financially just a lot more bleak than most anybody in your life realizes. And you don't aim it at the employer. You, you don't aim the frustration or the stress at the bank. You aim it at a friend. Or a spouse, or a pet. That's who gets the anger. But it's really over something else. And in this passage, it's interesting what James is saying. He's saying, listen, you you are in a, a place in life where you're having to wait. And the passage begins with him saying, therefore, be patient, therefore. Now, when it says therefore, it ought to make you look at what went right before he's hooking it to what he just got through saying. What did he just get through talking about? James just got through talking about the oppression of the have-nots by the haves. The oppression of people without means and without resources by the rich. And right on the heels of that, he says, listen, therefore, in light of that, you've got to be patient. You're in a situation where you cannot fix that. You're a have-not. You don't run the show. And if you're not careful in your anger, in your frustration, in your fatigue, you're going to start aiming it in the worst place you could aim it. And where is that? At one another. You're going to start aiming it within the church. You must be patient. So here's what I want to look at this morning. First off, the context of patience. The context of patience. What is it? Second, where do you get it? Where do you get this patience that we need? And third, how does that affect the community? How does patience affect even a local church? So what's the context of patience? Where do you get the patience? How does patience affect the community? And, and think back to, you know, I'm, uh, I'm getting abused by a boss. And the way it manifests itself is I'm angry at my church. We would call that misguided. Or we would call that being mean. James would call that impatience. All right, so what is the context of patience? Well, look at the beginning of the passage. You know, multiple times he says, be patient, be patient. Got to be patient. And he uses an illustration in verse 7. He says, think about farmers. Think about the farmer. Now, Now, what is the situation of the farmer? Is he passive? Well, if you're a passive farmer, you're not going to make it. 
farmers are known for being hardworking. They're known for being conscientious. They're known for being active. Usually people that grow up on farms have incredible work ethic. So much blood, sweat, and tears. But what is the reality? I can irrigate. I can plow. I can neaten. I can uh, put my tools away. I can take care of my animals. I can consult with other farmers. I can work late into the night. But what happens, happens. And it takes this long whether you work hard or don't work hard, you have to wait. And it was interesting in studying for this, this is where it's great to have scholars that know this kind of stuff. A New Testament scholar who's really an expert in the Greek, he said he didn't know of any other ancient Greek piece of writing anywhere where produce was called precious, except for James 5. Now think about that. So that, that's an adjective, even in the New Testament, that's usually applied to gold or silver or precious stones, and it would be the same way in other Greek literature. But think about what James is saying. In the grand economy of the world, in the grand global scheme of things, is this bushel of wheat a big deal? It is to the farmer. Because of his life and because of his blood, sweat, and tears, it's a big deal to him. Is it going to change the history of the world? No. Is it precious to him? Yes. The things that God's people have to be precious about, is it going to change the news around the world? No. Is it going to shake the foundations of Greenville? No. Is it a big deal to us? Yes. And think about the kind of words in that short little passage that describe the life of the person who needs to be patient. They're having to wait. And I preached on waiting from a psalm last year, and we talked about waiting is a form of what? It's a form of suffering. It's not physical torture. It's not chronic physical pain. But it is suffering because we crave resolution. And it's called suffering a few verses later. Think about the prophets, their patience, and their suffering. It talks about steadfastness, having to endure, having to take it over the long haul. Think about this this morning. The, the context of our need of patience is this. What is it that for you is a waiting that would actually cross the threshold of being suffering? I don't mean like, I can't wait to find out what I'm getting for Christmas. That's not the kind of waiting we mean. We mean injustice. We mean relational strife. We mean chronic pain. It could be something very close to James 5, oppression by an abusive boss or employer. And we crave resolution. That's the context of patience. All right, so where do you get it? How do you get the patience that James is advocating? Because he's commanding. We said James does not mind the imperative. He does not mind telling you what to do. But he's giving you the resources. Where do you get the patience? A couple of things. First off, the Lord's return and the Lord's character. The Lord's return and the Lord's character. Look in verse 7 again. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. 
verse 8. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now that Greek word for coming in the first century, it became virtually a technical term for not just God generically showing up and helping, but for the bodily, physical, real, actual return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at what he says in verse 7. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, this, this little passage says behold. It doesn't show up in the English three times. He's saying, look, look, look at what I'm saying. Look. Behold, look, the judge is standing at the door. Now, I want you to think about that image. The judge, i.e. Jesus, he's standing at the door. James just used an image that Jesus uses about himself. I want to read you two passages. One is from one of the Gospels, Mark 13. Mark 13 is loaded with parables about the end of time and the return of Christ. And here's what he says. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, these things that he's been talking about, you know that he is near at the very gates, in Greek, at the very doors. And it's the picture of a city. And don't think L.A., Chicago. Think an ancient city with a wall around it, different gates, a city like Jerusalem. That when you see these things, know that he, and he means himself, He's right outside your gates. He's right outside your door. Another passage. This is Jesus talking, Revelation 3. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, think about this. What the Scriptures seem to indicate and what James picks up on is that the church, and I don't mean just a local church like downtown Prez, but I mean the church throughout time, the Holy Catholic Church throughout time, is is like a giant family that lives in a big house. And it's got different floors, and it's got different rooms, and people squabble in the house. Uh, And there's a door to the house. And standing on the other side of the church's door is Jesus. And he's standing there. And here's the question. If, if you know that you live in a house and standing on the other side of the door is Jesus, how, how would you live? How would we conduct ourselves? Uh, would we scream at one another? Would we be petty with one another? Would we blame one another if we're standing in the living room knowing on the other side of that door is Jesus? Jesus says, well, that, that is, that's the deal. I'm right there. I'm right at hand. And when you don't expect, I'm going to walk through the door and physically be seen in your midst. But I am there until that happens. The return of the Lord is a big deal. And the character of the Lord, the nature of the Lord. What else does James say? He says, uh, he uses another Old Testament example, verse 11. 
It says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness, or your translation might say endurance of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, I want you to hear that in context because I think especially if you're from a church background, especially if you've been around the Bible at all and you hear, God is loving. God is merciful. We probably wouldn't act this way outwardly, but inside we're kind of going, yeah, yeah, I know that. But think about the context of what James has already said in this letter. Jesus is the Lord of glory. This is a glory that is so fierce that the angels cannot look on it with their own eyes. This is a glory that is so uh, potent that when the glory came on the tabernacle and the temple, the priest could not stay inside. Jesus is the Lord of glory. When you saw the glory cloud in the wilderness, that's an approximation of who He is. And it says He's the judge. And James says He has the power to destroy. And then on the heels of that, He says this, and, not but, He's compassionate and He's merciful. And that little phrase is this wonderful echo of something that is said over and over and over in the Old Testament. It was first said when Moses had had it with the people of Israel. And he grew what James would call what? Impatient. They're worshiping the golden calf as they've seen all these miracles on the Mount Sinai and they've seen God manifesting His glory. They're worshiping a false god. Moses has had it. And he finally says to God, I'm paraphrasing, if I'm going to stick with this, I, I'm going to have to see you. I'm going to have to see your glory. God says, you can't see my glory. It'll kill you. Here's what we'll do. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. And you can't see my face or you'll die. I'm going to cover that cleft with my hand and I'm going to pass by and then I'll let you see my back. And so the next day, that's what happens. Moses is in the cleft of the rock. God covers it with his hand and he passes by and God describes himself. And his description of himself gets echoed for the rest of the Old Testament. And it's echoed in this passage. God passes by and describing himself, he says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. This is after they just worshiped the golden calf. Unbelievable. And he would have had every right to say, the Lord, the Lord, the wrathful, the just, the angry, richly deserved. On the heels of the golden calf incident, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Does that mean he's a pushover? No, because the next thing he says is that yet he does not clear the guilty. He visits the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. Both and. But that refrain about God is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. That's said over and over and over in the Old Testament. And James says, listen, have you had it? 
Have you had it? You're supposed to be getting child support and you're not getting child support and you're the person who was sinned against. You're the person who's putting in 60, 70, 80 hour weeks and the supervisor's screaming at you and you've had it. How do you be patient in that? Here's what you've got to understand. The resolution you crave, you will see in a way that you won't believe in its totality when He returns. In the meantime, this Jesus who is with you, this Jesus who is standing right, at, right outside the door, this Jesus who sent His Spirit to dwell in your hearts, He is the Lord of glory and He is compassionate and gracious and merciful. He has not forgotten you. He sees all your tears. He knows all your heartburn. And He is Emmanuel. And He is with you. And that is the real deal. And th- this, this just... Uh, this got me in studying this. In verse 8, he says, Establish your hearts. Be patient and establish your hearts. What does that mean? Or it could be in Greek, strengthen your hearts. Uh, and then in verse 10, he says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets. It, that just doesn't have a lot of oomph to us. And he says, hey, for example, take the prophets. That just kind of sounds like, hey, take my wife, please. You know, just go like, hey, here's an example. The verb take there really means more. Look, receive into your heart. Think about and feel the example of the prophets. A lot of those guys got killed. They had to say unpleasant things and really uh, get beat up or ostracized or killed for saying it. And some of them had to talk about things that would happen in the future and then not get to live to see it. It was hard. And he's saying this, you've got to think about how faithful God was to them. That in the new heavens and the new earth, Jeremiah and Isaiah and Amos, these guys who had to say and do some hard things, they're going to be there with us. You've got to strengthen your heart to... Here's the deal. Read or sing or spend time with people who help you remember how real that is. That you've got to take responsibility for strengthening your heart. And that's going to be different with different people. For instance, a book that used to be uh, much more well-known among Christians than it is now is still in print, is a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's an old book. And it's actually been supplemented with martyrdoms of the last century or so. It's an account of all these men and women and children who were killed, and they were killed because they believed in and followed Jesus Christ. And you read about their torture, or you read about them being handed over to the wild animals in the Colosseum or you read about them being put in the dungeon, or their beheadings, or being shot. Why would God's people want to read that? That book is all over the world. It's because, not not for everybody, but for some people, it's a way of saying, this is true. This is not fiction. This is not something that's socially constructed. This is something that so grabbed the hearts of men and women and children that they could live with oppression. 
They could be enslaved. They could have their stuff taken away. They could watch their family members be killed. They could be killed, and it was worth it. And anything that helps fix that, not only in your mind, like, yes, I can see that that is true, but really deep down in your feelings, your affections, we need to do that. Um, uh, Eric Barnhart that, that played the, the prelude, he said, are there any hymns that, you want, that you're going to refer to in the sermon? I said, yeah, I'm going to refer to uh, Low How a Rose Air Blooming. And then he just kind of walked up into this arrangement that would take me, you know, 11 years to learn. He made up off the cuff, I think. And, uh, but I, I love that Christmas hymn. And I'll tell you, I don't listen to Christmas music all year, but I sing Low How a Rose Air Blooming all year long. Uh, there, there's a stanza in that song that says this. It's talking about Jesus. It's, talk, it's, it's talking about Jesus being like a flower. It says, This flower whose fragrance tender with sweetness fills the air, dispels with glorious splendor the darkness everywhere. True man, yet very God, from sin and death he saves us and lightens every load. Okay, if there are better lyrics, I do not know them. They're centuries old. And I've always loved that song, but I'll tell you, um, where, where I started singing that almost on loop was as my father was dying. To hear the reality, and I, I knew it theologically, but I wanted to feel it that from sin and death he saves us. And Jesus lightens every load. The load of the unjust boss. The load of the unjust divorce. The load of the unjust relationship. The load of chronic pain. He lightens every load. And we need to, if it is a poem, if it is a song, if it is a book, if it is a friend, we have got to grab onto the things that help us not only know that, but feel it and strengthen our hearts that this is real. When that happens, how does it affect the community? I want to end with this. And I, I, never, would have, I never would have connected these dots if James had not done it for us. Verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. That verb for grumble, it's the Greek verb for groan, it can mean anything from literally groaning about people, like when someone hacks you off and you're behind closed doors and you just kind of go, ugh. Like, I don't know what to say about them, but ugh. And that's, we do it with people in the church, to complain about people in the church, um, to gossip about people in the church. And, you know, if you're already tired about the way your life is going, and by tired, I don't mean a day or two with bad sleep. I mean you are tired in your being. You are tired in your bones. You're tired of being tired. It's easy to aim that at the church. It's easy to aim that at brothers and sisters. So I'm going to be the contrarian in my community group. Or I'm going to complain about this aspect of the church or the worship service or this Christian friend or this person in our church. 
it's because I am so tired. And I can't aim it at my, at my boss, so I'm going to aim it at you. I can't aim it at my ex-husband, so I'm going to aim it at you. James says, please don't do that. But think about this. I'm going to close with this. Here's what we have that can free us from doing that with one another. Have any of you seen the TV show um, Coming Home on the Lifetime Network? I've already talked about the Cartoon Network, uh, Lifetime Network. I'm going to cover all the networks before the morning's over. Okay, on the Lifetime Coming Home, let me just tell you, if, if, you, have, if you have struggled to keep a dry eye in Extreme Makeover Home Edition, <laughs> Coming Home is lethal. Lethal. It's a show about soldiers, American soldiers, coming back, most of them from the Middle East, and watching them be reunited to um, spouses, parents, uh, children, mothers sometimes with their children, siblings, best friends. It will, I mean, your heart can be made of granite and rusted iron, and it will take you down. It, it is so powerful to watch when you know, of course they drag it out, but when you know, wow, all that had to happen for this soldier to make his way all the way from Afghanistan, and now after all that travel and all that waiting and all that separation, he's now standing in the hallway right outside the door of the classroom where his six-year-old son is about to see him. And here's what James is saying. If you were that six-year-old and you knew, you can't see him yet, but you knew that Daddy was right on the other side of that wall, he's right about to come through that doorway, wouldn't that help you not squabble with the other people in your class? Wouldn't that help you? Wouldn't that overwhelm whatever disagreements you'd had with your classmates? If, and I'm saying, I know there's men and women soldiers, but I'm saying he because of the analogy. If, if you were a wife, let's say you're a newlywed, like you got married and a month later your husband deployed and you haven't seen him in a year and a half, you're dying to see him. If you knew that he was just about to walk in your front door, wouldn't that change how you feel about financial burdens? Wouldn't that change how you feel about whatever frustrates you with your body or your finances or your work? Wouldn't that change everything? And what the Scriptures say and what James is reminding us is that there's going to be a second advent. We're celebrating the first advent, but there's going to be a second one. It could be this afternoon or it could be 1,500 years from now. But when He comes the resolution that we crave will happen physically, relationally, financially. It will be the new heavens and the new earth, glorified men and women with new bodies and new souls. It will happen. And until that time, God is with us. He is just. He has the power to destroy But the cross is the message that that destruction fell on someone so that we might be saved. Which means that we might have the experience that He is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love. Let's be patient with one another as we help each other. 
as brothers and sisters in a world where everybody in this room is having to wait until the resolution. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come quickly. Amen.